Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Ricka Ennis and Helen Oro from Copenhagen-based Reinvent Studios about its multi-million euro investment in Nordic content and the world's first drama shot in the Faroe Islands. And Film Picks co-founders Henrik Friss and Ben Wiebe on their new short forms focused SVOD service. In 2018, Copenhagen-based Reinvent Studios was formed as a bespoke sales financing and packaging studio. Since then, the company's built a comprehensive distribution slate of film and television titles while also investing in and co-producing many more projects. As Reinvent secures a multi-million euro deal to further invest in Nordic content and moves into physical production for the first time, Chief Executive Ricka Ennis and Sales and Marketing Director Helen Oro spoke to Michael Picard about the firm's ambitious growth plans, how it has navigated the coronavirus pandemic and the first ever drama shot in the Faroe Islands. I guess, Ricky, we'll start with you. You set up the company in in 2018 to focus on packaging, development, financing, um, later to be joined by Helena when you sort of expanded into distribution. Can you just tell us a bit about the initial ambitions for the company at the outset? Because two years ago, three years ago now, packaging was kind of becoming a bigger part of particularly drama productions. Can you just tell us a bit about how you started and and how you've been working over the last couple of years? Uh, Well, having worked with Centropa and Intrust Nordisk, uh, what What I found extremely important before opening the company Reinvent Studios is the close collaboration between production, development and international sales. So whatever you actually produce is, uh, you know, has a good response to the international market. So I think, you know, the link of actually the international sales agent being very close to what is being developed and produced is is a key factor. And then, of course, uh, the financing part is crucial. I mean, nobody wants to do a TV series or a film that would take four or five five, six years to finance. So actually being able to have a very clear view over the financing from day one and be able to uh, fill the gap rather quickly was uh, one of uh, the very important factors. So this is why uh, reInvent is built on three, you could say, silos, where one of them is packaging slash production and then international sales and finance. And then, of course, you know, everything is about people. So we have very good people with a great network and the fact that Helena is so skilled uh, within the TV series part and I come from the feature film part we thought was the perfect match and then with Frederick Nelson who is CFO and also a partner in the company with his financing background it just seemed like uh, the perfect match. Now having uh, EIF and European Investment Fund uh, coming aboard uh, will make it much easier for us to live up to this expansion strategy and actually be helpful to producers to uh, invest in the content. And so um, when you sort of come on board a project or you're, you're kind of speaking to producers, what is that development process for you and in terms of your own involvement, financing, gap financing, you know, what kind of role then do you play as that partner in, in these productions? I think it very much depends on, uh, you could say, the project itself. Some projects have very skilled and very uh, experienced producers and they can do most of the development work themselves and even bring 
bring co-production partners aboard, then our role would be purely international sales. But if it's a talent, if it's a script writer, like it was the case with Trump, where Torfinor had an idea, he bought an IP, he optioned a book, and he had made a first version of a script. He didn't have anyone aboard at that time. And we just found the story extremely interesting. So there we went into a full-blown collaboration, you could say, where we became the production company. In other cases, we've been executive producers, uh, where we've been, you could say, filling the gaps with our knowledge and, of course, our access to financing partners. So it very much depends on the the project. And, And how would you just say the industry has evolved over the last two or three years, whereby the work that you do is is kind of a a needed and and necessary part of uh, the industry where perhaps five, six years ago, it wasn't perhaps? Well, I mean, the market is much more blurry than than normally and new players have come in. Of course, a lot of platforms, broadcasters and the whole window system is getting uh, quite complicated. So what before used to be a classic model can be combined in 20 ways. And having that knowledge means that you need to know uh, who are the players, what can these players commit with and how can you make a financing pattern work? So I think, you know, there is a lot of creativity needed these days, but also a lot of opportunities. And of course, the more you know the players, the more you see, uh, you know, what directions to go, the easier it becomes to you. And if you only do one production every three years, it's very hard to have that knowledge. And I think that's where we can uh, play an important role. If I can add something here, I think in the past, it was very much like uh, you got your series or film or documentary you got it financed and that was it you could go out and sell it whereas today a sales agent plays a much bigger part in the financing role you need LOCs you need to apply to media it's much more complex the whole financing of the series and I can see that was really where there was a gap also in my former job that uh, a lot of uh, producers were coming to say but we have this gap how do we fill it up so we become more like a collaborator in finding the remaining financing in order to go into production and that is also doing the windowing selling the different windows in a much more complex way so uh, I think that we could say that it's very much being a much more active partner in financing but also in finding the right partners broadcasters platforms and then you need to know how to play the different windows when you need to negotiate non-exclusivity versus exclusivity because a lot of series they're not fully financed you need still to go out there and find a very big gap that's missing and, and Helena I mean you you joined reInvent to kind of build this new sales kind of division of the company and having come from DR sales where you would have been very well known in the industry I'm sure um, what was that like for you and, and how have you gone about building those relationships and and I guess offering something new to your partners? It was a great opportunity and after having worked at DR Sales for uh, nearly 20 years, uh, to get this opportunity to go out in the market and actually being a part of building something where I felt there was a gap is of course uh, fantastic. And then with Ricky, whom I've known for so many years and we have collaborated, now we're actually working together. Of course, it's great. It's a small company. We're very flexible, very agile. 
and we can take very, very quick decisions. And I think that's a big force that we have. And of course, uh, when you move from uh, doing sales in the industry into this, I mean, it's the same people more or less you, you deal with. We have more rights here to deal with. Now we also have the films. So of course, we can offer a very big variety in, in what we sell and the way we can make it all work and market it and brand it in a different way when you have series and films. I think that gives us a very strong backbone in the company that we can actually do that. But of course, it has been fantastic to start with uh, from scratch. We had uh, one series that was finished and a lot on its way. And it, it has gone, you know, the time has really passed now, three years down the line, we have a very big catalog. And of course, that's also thanks to SF Studios who came with all the feature films. But we have been able to work with a lot of very, very skilled producers. And now we have many fantastic TV series on the shelf and young and formats, uh, short formats for young adults. The range is very varied. I think we try to bring the best from both worlds into reinvent and uh, try to forget the things that doesn't work. So we take the best of both worlds and of course being able to go much more into the financing, that's where there has been a need. There's also been a need to establish not just a Danish, Swedish or Norwegian sales agent but a place that is really Nordic so that you always have a lot of series on the shelves and that has actually been my ambitions for several years to to have that because one year you might have less short formats and the other year a lot of longer primetime tv series so you always if you want to keep your share of the market you need something to offer all the time something new and that, I guess that's going to be boosted now Ricky mentioned the loan you've had from the European Investment Fund 26 million euros I believe <laughs> Uh, was the number. So um, I'm sure you have people calling you uh, to ask about that. But um, I, I guess in, in the statement that came out with the announcement, you were talking a bit about boosting, you know, obviously the Nordic film and TV sector um, and the importance yes. now of, of retaining rights. So how do you see yourselves using this money to boost the Nordic film and TV industry, which as people will know, is is highly sought after and, and well regarded. So how, how do you hope to further that? First of all, it's important to say that it's not cool cash on the table. It's a guarantee so whatever we invest will be uh, you could say private equity it's going to be money on the table and if we fail with estimates or whatever we do then we will have the guarantee backing up 70 percent if it's only one project if we fail all the projects the guarantee will lower so it's based on a portfolio kind of uh, thought but of course this is a, a humongous help to us and to the industry because it's going to bring some credibility that will make our access to to the money through banks uh, or private investors extremely much easier and that will boost the Nordic sector no doubt about it. It means that we will be in three years potentially putting 37 million euros into uh, the region and that's either by MGs combined with bridge finance. Of course a big part of that will be bridge finance but every transaction cannot be more than 2 million euros. So this will be boosting the Nordic sector in a way I think you haven't seen before. And it's the first time that a European investment fund actually invests in a private company. And also the first time that they invest in minimum guarantees. That has never happened before. This is normally a guarantee that would go to banks. And of course, we know banks, they're wonderful, but they don't always understand the business. And that's where we have a great advantage because we know the business, we know the producers, we know the people, we have the network. So 
hopefully that uh, money and, and that guarantee can be helpful to uh, a lot of uh, not only TV series productions, but also film productions. Yeah, and of course, uh, we will be looking for the good stories that can travel. And um, as it's a guarantee, I mean, we will still be doing our calculations and estimates on market terms. So it doesn't mean that we will go bananas in investing. It has to be on the market terms. But of course, we will be able to do more series than we've been able to invest in for the last three years. Uh, we have done a lot of investment, but with this guarantee, we can do much more. And it will be the good story. It won't just be crime or drama. It will be a mix of everything. And uh, as long as it's uh, skilled people telling the story and it can travel and there's a good story to tell, and there are so many important stories to tell out there, also in fiction. So uh, that will, of course, to boost our catalogue in the years to come. And we are, yes, quite busy reading through scripts and talking to a lot of producers at the moment. And I guess it's a good boost for you. It comes at a time when the industry is, you know, looking to pick itself up after a year of, of turmoil. How has the pandemic affected you as a, as a company in terms of developing new projects? Has that continued? Um, and, and sales, obviously, Helena, been a big part of the, the industry over the last year in terms of broadcasters looking for library content when their own projects have kind of stalled a bit so how have you both had to react to you know the events over the last year as for the sales they have been uh, ongoing and uh, of course a lot of streamers and broadcasters they still needed content and especially the series but also catalog titles in in that way we haven't really felt the pandemic of course it has been more in the production side and Ricky can get back to that and also three of our great big titles were pushed uh, they are just launched now but as we have had the catalog we had a number of TV series that were ready we could deliver right away so we haven't felt the pandemic in that way of course we can feel we can't travel we can't go anywhere but we have been very busy online during all the markets and uh, the clients have been there we, we call we are online we, we talk to them every week so that has uh, worked quite well and of course we have been extremely lucky than a lot of the new series they had uh, finished shooting so it was the editing so they just came out we had outlier that was just ready we had a number of short formats for young adults ready and uh, they were all fresh and ready to go just as everything goes down so of course that was a good thing and then we have sold a lot of catalog titles from SF Studios series and film but of course the three big films Immigrants Magrede Queen of the North and the packed they were pushed but they are part of the lineup for Berlin a little delayed but that's fine on the production side Tram was postponed uh, half a year but that felt in a way good because that you know made us dig into the script writing even more and adjust uh, some things so so I think it's mainly Tram that was affected by it the other projects we have in development you know we just put some more energy, energy into the development and uh, then we'll be uh, shooting in, in autumn and, and going forward. So, of course, it has had more an impact in terms of delaying the processes, but not critical in any way. But 
let's just face it. I mean, Corona is not fun for anyone and everybody would want to be at a festival and meet people face to face. It's a totally different scenario, but you just learn to get by. And I guess, you know, just the online world as we know it today in the future, we'll take the good things from the online world and combine that, you know, with, of course, very important social side of meeting your customers. The industry itself talks a lot about when we'll be back, you know, at Berlin Ali, you know, sadly, we'll be missing it this month or, um, you know, MIP TV, obviously, there are hopes for MIPCOM, I guess, later in the year. I guess on on one side, sales can continue relatively unscathed, perhaps. But in terms of developing projects, meeting new partners, I mean, how have you just found doing that online and and keeping business going without having those face-to-face meetings? I think when you know people in advance, it's actually very practical and very efficient. But when you get to know people for the first time, there is something about the chemistry between people that cannot be transmitted through a screen then it's difficult and of course it's also about you know trust and and getting a relation and and their online is a little bit more difficult but i think uh, when you know people uh, i think it's actually quite efficient and meetings that would normally take one and a half hour two hours uh, if you meet you know in person would take let's say 45 minutes so it's very efficient as well you've both mentioned a, a trauma a little bit so we should maybe dig into that a bit more because i think is it fair to say this is your first kind of a lead production role on a, on a title. So can you tell us a bit about how that came to you and, and how then you've stepped up to fulfill the, you know, the producer role that you have maybe supported in the past? Yes, well, it came quite natural since Torfinor, the main writer, uh, came uh, with a great story, uh, with a great book uh, that he had optioned, uh, but didn't really uh, you know, know how to get a step further. And this being Faroe Islands, a very small island part of Denmark with 50,000 people, and which has a totally different language. I mean, how do you finance that? It's definitely not out of the Faroe Islands. But, you know, we found it just extremely fascinating and very exotic. The fact that, you know, you could use the Faroe Islands as almost a character in itself that combined with crime. So we immediately uh, thought that this would be fantastic for international uh, an international release. Took it to Berlinale, where it got selected among very few projects um, there two years ago. And there it just kickstarted. It just got, you know, so much attention and, and so much interest from international broadcasters. And then Viaplay came aboard and became the main commissioner together with, of course, the local KVF uh, as a small part. So I think it's um, it, it's been a journey which is uh, absolutely fascinating. Of course, when you have a crime series set in an exotic place where the nature even plays, like Ricky said, a character in itself, and crime really does travel. But here you have a lot of underlying topics as well. You have a small community, you have religion, you have the whaling. There's a lot of uh, topics playing in. And I think that attracted the international audience when we pitched it on stage in Berlin. And uh, of course, we've been following the leads with the number of broadcasters ever since. And we had the ZDF artists that joined the project quite early. So they're one of our big co-financing partners on the project and it has just been uh, fantastic to start working with Tourpinot at, at such an early stage and see you know going through the whole script writing commenting uh, that people here at reInvent has done and going into production and honestly speaking I think uh, the financing pattern of Trump is very unique and you know it would not have, have happened had it been the traditional way so I think uh, we were quite innovative in 
terms of how to make this happen, combining our unique strengths. Uh, so I think actually Trump is the perfect example of what reInvent can do when we do it best. And this is also why uh, it was a natural step, you could say, where we are as a company to take this to the next step and become the production company itself. But we are, of course, closely collaborating with our co-producers uh, in Faroe Islands, Jon Hammer, Big Pictures, and also True North in Iceland. So we're putting all the best people at the table uh, and do what we do best. And uh, we start shooting on the 15th of March and are just super excited about it. And, you know, I think also the fact that we could combine very strong Danish cast, like Thompson in the lead, Olaf Johannesson, who is actually from the Faroe Islands, very few people knew. Uh, and then Maria Rick uh, is, of course, a great cocktail together with the local cast. And this will be something we haven't seen before, for sure. And, and just in terms of physically filming in the Faroe Islands, how, how are you going to do that? I imagine there isn't a large film infrastructure there. Um, so what, what measures have you had to take, especially with the pandemic going on, um, what measures yeah. have you had to put in place to ensure filming can get underway um, next month? Well, I mean, the Faroe Islands, it's the first time a TV series is shot there. So it's all very new and very exciting. But there is so much local amazing talent there that are ready just to help and learn from experienced uh, TV people. So we are bringing A functions from both uh, Denmark and Iceland through True North. And that combination will make a very strong cocktail and will actually make the local community learn from these very experienced people in order to take it to next step when we go for a season two uh, or something like that. So I think the willingness and the openness and, and this great wish to make it work from the Faroe Islands has been a big blessing to us. Now the team went there uh, last week and everybody's getting together and people in the Faroe Islands, they absolutely know who everyone is from the Trump team. It's like everybody knows each other and they say, can we help? I mean, is there anything we can do? You can borrow uh, my house you can borrow my car you can do this and that and that makes it absolutely amazing to to produce in in a small island because people they just want to help it's beautiful so that's a big help but of course we need uh, the experienced people as well and they come from Denmark and from Iceland and of course Casper uh, Bafu being the conceptualizing director he has a great experience and and also brings uh, his team what kind of year do you, you expect to have um, what are the challenges or the opportunities that you see kind of going forward over the next year or so? What, what are some of the things you're thinking about for 2021? Well, I think in terms of, of challenges, of course, it's going to get, you know, to actually opening up the markets, and especially for the cinema market, it's been uh, extremely under pressure. So uh, the vaccine program getting along, you know, so that actually in the autumn, we can look into a pretty much normal world or not quite normal, but at least with open cinemas would be a, a, a great thing. But that's a big challenge, of course, for the feature films. From the opportunities, I think that, you know, people have been forced uh, into looking at new ways of doing things, that the whole online universe is opening up for not traveling as much and perhaps being more effective in some sites. Uh, and, and working remote, working from home can actually be an advantage in, in some cases. So I think people will be very picky with where they go. And perhaps, uh, you know, the opportunity is there to make even bigger events where people can meet and uh, mingle and get into amazing projects together. So we foresee a great 2021 after all. Yes, and I, I can add also uh, in the years to come, what we have seen uh, during the pandemic is we can work from anywhere in the world. So 
So people might be more picky in, in where they actually do go, but there's still a need to meet. And I mean, you need to be there for, for the network and for the buyers, but it is actually possible to sit on the Fair Islands or, or wherever in the world you are and do some of this, not in the production, but at least in the sales. And on the sales side, I think we have seen a lot of uh, new players actually being quite aggressive in, in the sales and they're popping up in a number of countries. And that will be opportunities in sales because we can actually sell the same series or the same film to more different buyers. So again, the ta- challenge is to understand the windowing and really do that puzzle really well. Then we will have uh, great opportunities in the years to come. Ricka Ennis and Helen Oro from Reinvent Studios talking with Michael Pickard. Henrik Friss and Ben Wiebe are chief executive and exec producer respectively of HF Productions, another Copenhagen-based organisation behind a global series of independent film festivals designed to champion international shorts and feature documentaries aiming to make social impact. Now the pair have co-founded FilmPix, a new global SVOD service going live this week to showcase such work and provide a platform for festivals providing virtual public screenings, with the first ones debuting in March. They spoke to Ruth Laws about the launch, the lessons to be learned from Quibi and what the post-lockdown world might mean for streamers. So Filmpix is the streaming platform for short films and documentaries. That's uh, essentially what it what it is. So Ben and I, we've worked at HF Productions, which is the, the parent company for a few years now. And our main focus has always been film festivals, particularly sh- uh, film festivals for short films. So our mission has always been to try and find more value. How can we give more value to, to independent filmmakers, to up and coming filmmakers and to, to short films? And unfortunately, our experience is that a lot of short films, they, they disappear after the film festival circuit so that's what Filmpix is it's a platform where the life of these short films can continue to to thrive that's what it is that's what we've been working on for the past year and uh, we're really excited to to finally launch where did the idea come from to launch Filmpix, and why have you decided to launch it now the idea came from back when when i was was also living in in denmark uh, we have we have a huge database of short films from from our portfolio of film festivals and i and i guess it it it, it also is a continuation that our experience for short films and, and independent filmmakers, we, we see that there's a, not enough representation in the in the market in general in the industry. So uh, I don't know exactly you know what day and how we we came up with with the idea, but it, I guess it was just a natural process for us wanting to find how can we provide more value to the filmmakers. Um, why does Filmpix stand out against other streamers? Yeah, I mean the competition is becoming tighter in terms of streamers, and and there has been a, a supplementation people moving to streaming. Uh, in the absence of of cinemas, right? But our, our biggest focus is that we we're curators, right? So we're not out there to just accumulate a massive portfolio of films and have you know many of them end up being possibly of lesser quality. We really try and be careful and detailed about where we identify projects, and we we already have an established track record of prioritizing the position of short films and how they can get to audiences through our festivals and through all the, all the 
work we've done outside of film fix. Um, so, I mean, many amazing stories still, like we've said, end up lost in the ether. So when we identify projects to get more closely involved in, they tend to do well. So like our last two projects, for example, that we worked to navigate on their trajectories, both acquired Oscar qualifying credentials. So that gives us, you know, our moment of pause where we know that we're we're in the right direction. And in terms of our, our content and how we see ourselves against our competition is the other platforms may include short films, but no one is really championing them as their top prioritization. So we will have more than short films. We do have feature documentaries and other mediums, right? But short films will be and continue to be our prioritization. And at the same time, we are, we are going to incorporate film festivals, uh, working directly with film festivals on the platform. Before setting up film picks, was there like market research or anything? Was there any data? You might have seen a statistic somewhere, for example, that said that, you know, 80% of people actually now want to watch short form content or was it just something that happened organically? It, it's it's both. I mean, there's definitely a lot of analytics that go into it, right? That you're, the average person, when they're not setting aside the time to watch, say, a, a full length feature, then oftentimes they're they're actually only tuning in for up to about three minutes and sometimes even, you know, a, a minute and a half of content. So this even this micro, you know, world of, of content has become uh, really popular because people are, um, I guess, have less time. And so that, that's that's been a battle. But when you look at what the, the cinemas offer, the cinemas have never prioritized uh, any short content or your short content would be used as an opener, right? Which even some of our competitors have done is taken short openers and tried to put them on their platform, but still they're not prioritizing. And uh, we do know that like in the US and the UK, for example, uh, there is now an average of about four subscriptions that the average person now has for streamers, which is a, a really good position for us. And um, so, you know, I think I think also organically, you know, the next year is, is still possibly a, a toss up. There is still going to be a paradigm shift. And so there is no timetable for when, you know, cinemas will completely open back up, industry events uh, will open back up, right? So I think that the streaming focus will continue to be a top priority for, for audiences because there's, there's still going to be possibly a large absence of other options. People have been talking about subscription fatigue. Um, I just wondered if that concerned you at all. Uh, I mean, it can. There's a there's a cost to all this, and I think that I, th- I think it opens up their options. So you know, we know that the price to go to the cinema has also continued to go up uh, exponentially faster than the price of streaming services. And I think one of the biggest things that we're also fighting in that tug of war battle is that cinemas have not done enough to create an environment that's conducive to making it for a unique experience, right? And when you go in, you are committed to purchasing one thing at a time versus, uh, you know, the streaming, that's literally what we're doing. We're providing a a mass, you know, amount of options that are open-ended for you every time you come and interact with us. So I think that the fatigue is on people choosing, you know, where, yeah, where to, to spend their dollars, but when they know they commit, they also know that that there's an out, right? They're they're not you know beholden to having to pay over and over, or that they've chosen something you know one item that could be poor, and now they've they've wasted their time or they've wasted their money. I think that 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 fatigue, uh, I think it, it it will run its course. I think it's a new thing that people are having to just rely on on streaming, and I think part of that fatigue is more because people are almost have no choice because they they are kind of stuck in their homes, and this is still true you know pretty globally right now people are stuck in their homes so their their only option for a 
lot of it has been streaming services like, like FilmPix. So once the options do become, you know, more open, I think people will realize unless theaters start doing more to bring that unique experience back and and create a more kind of disciplined environment like 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 stage, you know, theaters do. We'll we'll see. Do you see cinemas and theaters being your main competitors rather than other streaming platforms? I mean, I think you could say that. I I mean, both are true. Sure. I think we've challenged theaters to look at short films, for example, that they absolutely should not be an underutilized medium. That there's no reason why you couldn't have, say, a package of short films. You know, if you want to break down the, the two-hour set, right, that movie theaters prefer and that the studios prefer they, they set aside, you could do a package of short films in a two-hour session. And they, and they still haven't gone for that. So I think that that's something where we want to champion that kind of, of message and that kind of development. And I think it would be great if theaters really went that direction too. People coming up to us, being amazed by by the short films that, that we have programmed into the selection and, and also being genuinely surprised that they have not seen short films before. They don't know where they can access short films before because they're not, the, the fact of the matter is that they're not accessible in, in the cinemas. There really aren't that many streaming platforms that are that are showcasing short films. So I do think that there's a gap in the market where, where we are trying to come in with film picks and provide this, this platform where it's more accessible. And the other thing was, I just wanted your thoughts on Quibi, which obviously was a short-lived, short-form streaming platform that ended up failing quite spectacularly when it had been backed almost universally. I just wondered, obviously, Filmpix is another short-form content. Are there any lessons to be learned from Quibi? And does that raise any concerns for you? <laughs> um, I, think, I think a problem for Quibi was that they were over-leveraged from the beginning because they wanted to put a lot of liquidity into developing original content, which is great. I don't think we fault them for that attempt, but I think that you're going to be overextended before your launch because you're you're making a gamble, right? That you're going to get huge traction from the beginning and you've invested a ton. So we're, we've kind of gone a different direction. We think, you know, original content uh, is definitely in the cards for us, but our main launch prioritization is there's tons of content out there that's just being ignored. It has not been provided a place at the table to give, you know, appropriate spotlighting and, and, and showcasing. And so we're, we're identifying those projects. And some of them are, are new and some of them have been around for a few years, right? And people don't know where to find them. They, they haven't been provided that place. So that that's kind of the, the difference between the directions that we're going. And at the same time, that keeps us from becoming overextended in our early phase. And then, and then we'll see. Awesome. Um, and you touched upon the fact that you had plans for original content. When do you envisage having original content and what types of shows would you be commissioning? I mean, I think that's something that we're exploring in conversation but we're, we're definitely not going to commit to any any public plans on when that would happen. But it's definitely something that we're, we're going to have an exploratory process on that. Yeah. Which territories are you rolling out in first? We're going worldwide to, to start with. So so it's uh, it's exciting. We've, we've decided to do that. I mean, the, the majority of the market that we have from Age of Productions and from our film festivals is around 80% United States. So we're, we're really going big uh, in the U.S., United Kingdom, France, Germany, Spain uh, as well, and also Greece, of course, where our biggest headquarters is in. Uh, but we are also focusing uh, in Southeast Asia. We have an office in Jakarta, uh, so we are we are interested in, in seeing how how well we do we do there as well. 
as, and of course uh, Australia as well. Asia, we haven't seen any type of, of movement uh, on, on this front. So we're for us, it's it's it is a bit of a, an experimental process as well, particularly in, in that region. But uh, we we do have a, a festival in Jakarta that we run as well, which has been really really successful for us. And we're we're excited to see what uh, the, the film community says to to short films. We're excited to show this to our subscribers that are that are over there and uh, and see how, what kind of traction it gets. But uh, for us, in terms of acquiring content and making it available worldwide, has been less of a concern than it is for other people, perhaps, and other streaming platforms. So we, I think we've had an advantage there where it's easier for us to, to get the content that we want and make it uh, available worldwide. And we all, we're also present in 15 countries as it is right now. So it gives us, uh, I think, the opportunity to launch in, in worldwide. And uh, I'm, of course, we'll be focusing more on some ter ter territories than others, but I think making a, a platform available worldwide gives us the opportunity to get more visitors and and, and also get the films more, more seen by more people. I mean, it also speaks to a big part of our mission has been that we we see that there is a massive representation problem across our industry and so a, a big goal of ours has been how to champion content both what you see on screen but also projects that are helmed by people of vast perspectives and try and really spotlight that so by film picks and also in our festivals we really try and, and curate projects that are truly international and not limit that at all where have you acquired content from and um, what's your sort of shopping list and have you established any partnerships with content owners? Yes, we have uh, lots and lots of uh, partnerships with distribution companies. So we've worked with many distribution companies that have lots of films that come straight off, out of Sundance, out of Cannes, Locarno, uh, Berlinale, the top film festivals out there. So that's perhaps the biggest uh, avenue where we acquire the films. Uh, and then, of course, we also have lots of films from our own film festivals. So then we contact the filmmakers or the production companies directly to, to see how we can acquire these films. And those have been the, the two main avenues for us. And what content are you looking for? I know quite a lot of your content, obviously there's the, the short form, but I think um, you're looking for things that have a bit more of a social purpose. And we, we work with the United Nations, for example, on, on a lot of events. We, we run the SDGs Action Film Festival with UN Desa, for example. So that is a big part of, of our mission. So, for example, we put a series of, of short films from a, a, an NGO partner we work with called Global Girl Media. And uh, all of those projects are made by refugee women. So like that's an example of something that we're definitely going to be champion. And, and that sets us apart, too, uh, like you mentioned before, from our competition is really trying to show the importance of those vast perspectives that I wanted to mention. We also run an event in Svalbard called the Arctic Film Festival, where we champion climate action and environmental kind of films. So there's definitely a trajectory for those uh, same kind of projects to be on film page. Lots of major Hollywood studios are keeping their own content now for their own platforms. Does this affect you at all? Or are you looking for the, the, the niche, smaller projects? I mean, right now that does still seem relegated to just the major studios. And so so I think that's fine. I think uh, our representation in, has really been about independence, right? And so I think we've never really been in, in direct competition for the same kind of films anyway. So I don't think I don't think that's too much of a concern for us. And you have touched upon it a little bit, but I was just wondering if you could explain your relationships with film festivals and how that will work. Will film picks actually stream certain film festivals? Yes, that, that is the, the other component of film picks. 
So we're a platform for short films and, and documentaries, but we're also going to be a platform for film festivals being having their virtual screenings at Filmpix. So we, we don't have anything to announce right now, but we are working uh, with a few festivals and, and finalizing a few details. So hopefully we can make a pretty big uh, announcement in the coming days or weeks ahead. But yeah, that this is going to be uh, another co uh, component of Filmpix. Some of our own film festivals, we will be also uh, showcasing on Filmpix. Uh, and we're going to start with uh, the Dublin Independent Film Festival, which will be in March. Uh, so right now we're laying all this out on, on the platform, working on the technical side, uh, and everything's pretty much ready to go. And that's also going to be a great example for us to use to, to other festivals who are also approaching us about this uh, possibility. Amazing. Um, and do you have any concerns about once the worst of the pandemic is over and obviously film festivals return in physical form, do, do you think that will affect film picks? Will you continue to still stream them? I mean, there, there's always natural concern of where people's focus will become. I think hybridization models are probably the healthiest solution, right? That you know, there's been a bit of a tug of war, right? About you know, which is better or, <laughs> right? And so I don't think that there's either are mutually exclusive. So I, I think we've set ourselves up in a position where we, we have physical film festivals and we have a virtual platform. And so I think we can set an example with you know our own film festivals, like with Dublin, where we can do both once the world opens back up again and, and people start attending physical events. And then, and then we'll see. But I think that that's also going to be a big focus going forward. You've seen other festivals. In fact, in Denmark, where we were, we saw CPH docks right on our doorstep switch within just a couple of weeks, you know, in response to COVID from having their festival ready to go physically to go to going completely virtually. So it's not a process that necessarily takes a ton of time to be able to switch back and forth. So I think more people will be ready. And I think that it's it's shown that it's, it's definitely possible to have both side by side. This is a question in a, in a similar vein. I was just wondering what you think about the fact that streaming figures have obviously shot up due to the pandemic and due to the fact that lots of people are locked in. Do you think that once that changes and people are given more freedom that the demand for, st for streaming platforms will drop off and how will you go about engaging audiences once they're they're back to you know more of a normal life? I mean I, I don't think that the demand will change as much. There, there might be an initial flux you know when the world opens up just because people have also been deprived of, of many things of doing many things but I think overall, what we're still providing through streaming is this abundance of options. And to, to go back to, to the focus of short films, you know, even though people will be able to, you know, see some uh, or many of these short films in festivals, there's still not a lot of opportunity for them to see them unless they go to that particular festival, right? And 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 oftentimes, the films are only available for a very small duration of time. Some, some festivals might, you know, have a, a showcase that continues for maybe a week after that they're still available, right? But it's still a very small window. And so essentially we're we're making the window open-ended. I just wondered what challenges there are in the year ahead for people in the streaming business. I mean, like, like you touched on, I think we're all anticipating what's going to happen in the next year at all. I think people got a little overexcited that 2020 was a disaster and so 2021 was going to be great. And, you know, it, I mean, it's very possible we, we could, you know, be hunkered down for another time 
tough year, right? But we don't know. It, you know, no one knows. There's no, there's no benchmark to say. So I think we're just, I think we're all kind of biding our time and waiting to see what people do once they are able to be mobile again and stuff. But we do know that what people are going to want to do is they are going to want to travel again and go to physical events. So I think that our relationship we already have with physical events since that has been, uh, you know, the big focus of, of HF Productions and the work we do there, that that relationship will help our position more more than potentially others who kind of only have a streaming service or they, they're only relying on, on virtual, is that we're creating a community. That's our real goal, right? We're creating a community where there's this healthy relationship between vessels and streamers. And I think that's, that's you know, two, two of the best areas within our industry that should work closely together. Because festivals whole goal is to create opportunities for filmmakers and films to spotlight them as much as possible help them get deals that that lengthen their their shelf life for every film and so by creating these healthy relationships i think that's just a natural development yeah awesome and on the flip side of that what opportunities do you think there are in the year ahead i think i think the answers are actually the same uh, it's, the, it's the uncertainty you know we we just don't know how long this COVID uh, pandemic is going to last. So I think really, you know, it's take advantage of the time that we're living in. People right now are are at home. And when people are inevitably going to go out again, you know, we just have to focus on, I think, connecting both both opportunities, right? Making festivals hybrid, what, like what we're doing, I think is going to be able to answer to both of, of these uh, angles. Something you've actually already been seeing is people kind of dropping the overemphasis of competition. And you've actually seen already some of the major festivals like Sundance and Cannes and stuff publicly be willing to work together. And that's something that also mm-hmm. hasn't really happened before. At least it hasn't happened before is publicly because people are just addressing that companies have been hurt, right? Events, some events are completely gone. You know, some might even continue to disappear if they've been ha- hemorrhaging, right? So I, I think that we we feel really encouraged that more companies that otherwise would see themselves as competitors, including streamers and studios and, and and festivals might be more willing to embrace an alliance and look at each other as allies, which I think we should. I think that's great for the industry. I think that's I think that can only help audiences get you know access to more. And so I think the more alliances we we have and the less we you know worry about hyper competition, I think the industry will be better for it. Henrik Friss and Ben Weeb speaking with Ruth Laws. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.